The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Getting a little ahead of ourselves, Luke 12, 54, through the beginning of chapter 13, verse 5. Listen to God's own Word. What the Scripture says is what God says. We believe He revealed Himself uniquely as nowhere else in His Word. Listen to this as Jesus is the one speaking. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. When the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge may turn you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is the reading of God's own holy word. I think I can take it for granted that you all know what anniversary of what infamous national event is marked today. Unless by some great chance you've been in a coma for three weeks and haven't seen the constant TV broadcasts and news reports and newspaper articles and so many things memorializing the horror that America endured on the infamous day of 9-11-01, you know what this day is. You remember, if you're more than a teenager, that the day began with airplanes crashing into great buildings. The day ended in a great deal of fear and confusion and chaos and anger and sorrow that has changed us as a people and changed our lives together. So much has been said and written about 9-11 that 
as I considered preaching to you this day, I thought there's nothing noteworthy that I can say about it or add to it. But you see, that's the good thing about preaching. I don't have to have something original to say. There's a spokesman who has something to say, who I can guarantee you has not really been heard from, not in any of the media accounts and remembrances of this day that I have encountered. And that important spokesman is Jesus Christ. He spoke about falling towers. And he had a message about it that was not about genuinely heroic firefighters and policemen and ordinary citizens helping one another. It was not a mere humanitarian message of be sobered and pause and remember our freedoms and know what they cost. It actually was a different message. On the surface, it sounds like a little bit of a grim message because, as you would realize, Jesus was often viewing things differently than most men did. And he drew some conclusions about 9-11 that are not the conclusions you usually hear. But his words to us in Luke 12 and 13 point us today to a God who is sovereign over all historic events a God of providence, who out of the smoke and ashes of human hatred and folly and sin and degradation can bring those who come before Him humbly repenting in the name of Jesus to experience renewal and even transformation to a totally new life. You know, it would be good if we would keep our national calamities in perspective with all due respect to 3,000-some lives or nearly 3,000 lives lost on 9-11. 9-11, in terms of deaths alone, was not one of the biggest disasters of the world. How easily we can forget a huge tsunami that hit Sri Lanka and Indonesia and other South Asian countries in December 2004. Do you remember the total? The total deaths? It came near to 100,000. 100,000. Imagine America experiencing something like that. Do you remember a very recent earthquake in Japan that devastated that country and its nuclear reactor and other issues there that took tens of thousands of lives? I'm not trying to make our national disaster small in any way. But I would have you put it in a broader perspective and think about the tornado of Joplin, Missouri, which we're told is the worst in I don't know how many decades experienced just this summer. Or think about the acts of aggression on two war fronts where our nation and our troops are fighting, and the street rioting in London and all across the countries of the Middle East, the terrorism, the acts of nature, the droughts, the fires. Let's get a big perspective today and think about all the calamitous things that can happen. And, and you know, when these things happen, people are always asking the same unanswerable questions, and particularly they ask the question, they might do it with a snarl, or they might do it with a genuine query, where is God? And that question can be asked with real blame from some voices, as if God ought to stop these things, and 
and just prevent them. And people are usually not taking any degree of human responsibility for the disasters caused by men, which, of course, 9-11 was. And they want to cast themselves and everyone else as innocent victims, uh, and some would say of a cruel God who deals unfairly. And the bottom line to many people is, well, all right, I know that natural things happen, storms happen, earthquakes happen, tornadoes happen, but why didn't God stop it? And to them, the argument of agnosticism is defended right there. Well, if we're going to insist on asking wrong questions, we're always going to get wrong answers. But if we will allow disaster and a fear of impending death that it brings to a country or a people to expose us to a spirit of deep self-examination and true repentance before our God, both corporately, nationally, and individually, then we can discover that there is not just a possibility but a reality of true redemption that can come out of pain and great loss. There's one great vital question Jesus Christ is speaking today about 9-11, and if you don't hear anything else, I'm going to ask several questions, but here's the leading question of them all. The question Jesus is asking us to face today is this, do I have a right relationship with God? Do you have a right relationship with God. Now, you know, when you look at the text I read today, you might have seen three units that look kind of independent there. Most Bibles have the text separated into paragraphs, and you might have said, well, there's a little unit there about signs of the times, and then one about a guy being dragged to court, and then something about Galileans and towers falling, and I don't see the relationship. Well, I hope to show you that relationship because I think there's a solid line of logic running through these passages. And the way I wish to make it clear to you is to frame each of the three passages in terms of a question pointed to you. Verses 54 to 56 of Luke 12 ask this question. Are you blind towards spiritual discernment of the times you live in? Are you blind towards spiritual discernment of the times you live in? Jesus was speaking here apparently to a broad public audience, not apparently already dedicated disciples. And he wasn't gentle with them. He was blunt. And he observed the fact that many of these folks were farmers or fishermen or people for whom knowing the weather and timing their vocation by the weather was an important issue. And so he said, well, I see that you folks know how to know what to do about the weather and how to respond to it. I, I remember my grandmother teaching me uh, the, the, the great observation about weather that I've seen prove true so many times. You, you, many of you know it. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. I don't know why that works, but it does. And I can tell that much weather without any instruments at hand, without super Doppler 8 or any of those things. And he said, Jesus said, how is it you can interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but yet you're blind to the present time? You're blind to the age you're living in and the great things that are happening. And here's what he meant. Prophecy was being fulfilled. John the Baptist had come forth 
as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prediction that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And if they missed that, then Jesus came, speaking with authority, teaching, bringing together truths of the Old Testament that hadn't made sense before. And and now they shined forth and they fell into place and people said, wow, I never saw that before. And more than that, he was working miracles before their eyes, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. God was working in their time. And do you know there were people, (laughs) I'm sure there were many people, to whom it was more important whether the price of bread had gone up two drachmas or it was going to rain tomorrow than the fact that the Son of God was bringing someone to life in their village. That's what Jesus is talking about. God is among you doing undeniable things, and you go on in your daily tasks and act as if nothing has ever changed, and the little minutiae things of your life are all that matter. You know, we really blame the weathermen. I wouldn't want to be a weatherman. I've always said to my wife, why don't they apologize, you know? They could, they could come on and say, hey, folks, you know, I really did get it wrong yesterday. They have these high-tech instruments. But, you know, there's another way to look at weathermen. They really do get it right more often than not these days. The radar and everything else, it's amazing. They can say the storm's in West Hemfield and it's moving into... Uh, Western Lancaster, and, and it's moving up to New Holland, and sure enough, I'm sitting in my living room, and 15 minutes later, there it is right over me. They get it right more often than not. And yet, even today, with all of our instruments to be able to measure things like weather, to be able to measure a tremor in the earth that's down in Virginia somewhere, and know just how strong it is, and all these things people with great scientific education and all that's available to us today sometimes are absolute ignoramuses, willfully so, about what God is doing in the world. Well, the Scripture explains that. It says their foolish hearts are darkened. They cannot discern the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. But people actually refuse to acknowledge evidences for God. Can't you see... A marvel. You know, you think back to the the flood of Noah's day, and I don't want to dwell too long on floods because that's not a pleasant topic today, but you, you think of the rise of water and what water can do in our world. It's amazing. Water, this life-giving thing that we drink and bathe in and have to have, and yet too much of it in the wrong places can utterly destroy us. And you don't see that power that God has put in His world. Have we any signs from God to be observant about in our day? How many of you really take and put in perspective the fact that in the last 150 years, the great missionary movement of the Christian church has taken the gospel of Christ into hundreds of new languages and thousands of new places where it never was? In 1850, Christianity was largely a, primarily at least, a European movement. And now it's worldwide. And in fact, it's, it's nearly dead in Europe and alive and burgeoning everywhere else. You know, we sit in America, and if you don't bother to learn these things, you don't know that in South America and Africa and many parts of Asia, the church is exploding with growth. New churches starting so fast they can't begin to find people to pastor them or train them fast enough. 
Are you aware of these things moving in our time? Have we not observed nations rising and falling, dictators strutting around for a little while and then sneaking off into their secret escape tunnels when their people will have them no more? Haven't we seen communism fall? An impenetrable wall in Berlin go down and so it is no more? Think of the the things that conform to the signs, and I'm not going into this in detail today, but the many signs that the Scripture talks about at the end of days. The incidences of natural disaster, earthquake, storm, strife, battles, wars, hatreds among men, increasing not only in frequency, but in depth and breadth. Are these things just meaningless? Or are there some patterns going on here that God's people ought to be saying, look, look at the times. In the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles 12.32, we read of the noble sons of Issachar, who it says had understanding of the times. I wonder how many sons of Issachar there are around today in the Christian church who understand that God is doing things, that God's tapestry of historic plan for history is being woven, and the tapestry is nearly done. How many people really understand that the God rebellion seen on every side in our times is filling up nearly to the brim a cup of the wrath of God that those who rationalize and justify and brazenly defend anti-biblical sin are going to drink from? These things are happening. Where are the sound minds of biblical wisdom who can observe and say, the night is far spent? Behold, the day spring, the time of Christ, is nearly at hand. Do you even believe, as as Christians sitting in a Christian church, an evangelical church, sometimes I wonder if the evangelical church believes in the imminence of the return of Jesus to history. They say, oh, yes, I know it's going to happen sometime. Well, folks, at no point in history have all the signs said that the Savior is standing at the stage door awaiting His Father's cue for a grand re-entry to come in the clouds with great joy. Is His church waiting for that? People of Christ, we have no excuse for imitating the world's dull-mindedness and stupidity of unbelief. We have the cross enacted in history. We have the resurrection established by great proofs in history. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts giving us the mind of Christ. We have the Word of God revealing Christ and God Himself to us. We have no excuse for being stupid and in the dark like most of the world is. The Scripture says you are people of the day. And we know that events don't occur by mere accident or chance. God didn't fly airplanes into skyscrapers. But oh yes, He permitted it. Why would He permit something like that? I can't answer you. But God has eternal purposes and they are being worked out. And this is the God and Father who sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to the cross to die for our sins. And he's working out his purposes until that consummating day when Christ will be visible before the nations and all things will be subject to him beneath his feet. 
Romans 13 has a wonderful word. Romans 13, 11. The hour has come for us to awaken from slumber. Paul said, your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Are you blind with no spiritual discernment about our times? God is at work. Come and recognize him and worship before him. Now, a second question comes from Jesus' words in verse 57 to 59 here at the very end of Luke 12. And I'll frame the question this way of what I think Jesus is stating. Are you reconciled to God before his judgment day? You see the illustration he gives here. A man is taking another man to court because the first man owes the second man a sum of money and is apparently unwilling to pay. Now, it's important for you to understand, as you can see, it's assumed in this illustration that the person being dragged to court owes the money. He's guilty as charged, and he needs to pay this money. So Jesus says, look, wouldn't it be wiser for this man to settle up? Maybe, maybe the creditor would even accept a half payment or a payment plan or something if he would settle up before they go to court, and the jailer is there, the judge is there, and, and his last farthing is taken, and court costs too, and he ends up in jail. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about jails and judges there. He was talking about the spiritual condition of the people listening to him and of us. And he was saying something you don't want to hear, you don't like to hear. He was saying, look, you were guilty before God. You owe a vast debt to God. And there's going to be a great accounting day after death when if that debt is unpaid, it's going to hang over you and you won't be able to deal with it and you'll be thrown into the prison house that the Scripture calls hell, and you will never pay it, and it will condemn you forever. Now, we are in the position of this man in this illustration. The Bible says the law of God is set against us. We've failed its demands. They must be satisfied. We are guilty as charged. I'm not going into all the Scripture that could be summoned to prove that one. But I want to prove this. Dire as the situation may be, there's one who can deliver us. There's a way to do what Jesus said had to be done. Settle up before judgment day. How do you do that? You come to know peace with God through the gospel of the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came, who took the debt, who paid the burden, who settled our case, not because he especially liked us, not because we were innocent, Not because we could mount a good defense, but we just needed his help, but because he, the very judge of the high court himself, who we will face at the final day, said, I'll be your Savior. I'll come and lay down to your account, which you couldn't possibly pay, but I can pay. In other words, there's an act of mercy and grace here, but it has to be accepted. It's not going to help you if you don't deal with it, act upon it. I was amazed to realize it's nearly 40 years now since the remarkable conversion of Chuck Colson, an evangelical leader, a man who they laughed, you know, when Colson wrote Born Again. They said, oh, Colson just wants to get out of jail by playing the Christian game. 
Well, he's played the game for 40 years and proved with great authenticity that Christ changed his life. The life of a tough Marine, a lawyer, an assistant to the president, a man who designed all the tricks and all the schemes for President Nixon. Convicted as a felon, facing prison, he tells his own story, how he visited in the house of a friend. They talked about what it meant to go to prison. And Colson came out of that house and sat in his car and collapsed and wept for his dead-end life. And he tells his story and says this in part, It was not only the dirty politics, but all the hatred and deceit and evil stirring in me. I felt unclean. I knew I had no place to escape. I was the lawyer. I was supposed to have the answers. But in clear realization of my utter predicament, I was driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. Have you ever been where Colson was? Maybe not by that kind of a dramatic experience. But have you ever come to know what Charles Colson did, the words of Jesus in John 5, 24, when he said, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has right now, present tense, has eternal life. And he does not, will not, cannot ever come into judgment because he's already passed from death to life. That was true and effective in the life of Chuck Colson. Has it been true and effective for you? Have you settled on your way to court? Is what Jesus is asking. Why would you be so dumb not to? In light of the great debt that is facing you, that you will not be able to pay any other way in this lifetime or beyond. And so thirdly, we come to maybe the particular concern passage of this morning, Luke 13, 1 to 5. The other texts were necessary, I think, to set the stage for this. And there is a line of logic here as Jesus now says, I'll phrase his question this way, are you prepared before a tower falls on you? You see, people came and for some reason raised to Jesus two current headlines. They had some form of news, probably mostly oral in those days, but they talked about things we wouldn't know anything about except that they're mentioned here. One was a tragedy where some men from Galilee, where Jesus came from, had been down at Jerusalem offering sacrifices. We don't know what was going on there. Maybe Pilate's people suspected them of being insurrectionists or something People from Galilee were sort of had a reputation for being rabble-rousers. For some reason, Pilate ordered his soldiers to kill them while they were offering sacrifices. Imagine that. That's like terrorists in church. And, and the, the people asked Jesus, what about this? What about? They must have been terrible people for that. You see, the assumption always was you were a bad person if something like that happened to you. That's what they accused Job. Job, you've got to be a bad guy if this happened. And then the other one they raised was this incident of the collapse of the Tower of Siloam. We know that the Pool of Siloam was in the southeastern corner of Old Jerusalem, a pool there, and there was an aqueduct involved, and so somehow a tower was being built which evidently collapsed, a construction accident, what we don't know. And probably some construction workers and some bystanders, 18 of them died. And the question was basically, well, you know, what did those people do wrong that that happened to them? Well, here is the pronouncement of Jesus 
that applies to the Tower of Siloam and the Twin Towers of New York City. You see, when secular-minded people look at our modern tragedy, they will say to you, almost 3,000 innocent people died that day. Now, I agree. If you mean those people did not provoke their attackers to destroy their lives, of course, in that sense, they were innocent. But you see, Jesus is saying something here that's not so palatable to our modern ears and to our unsaved society because he was saying that every one of those people who lost their lives that day and in many other such disasters in the light of eternity were not innocent victims. The hard truth of the New Testament says we all have provoked God to his face. We've lied to him, to each other, We've deceived other people. We've broken every commandment there is, both in our hearts and our minds and with our hands and our feet. And we have been enemies of God. And the Scripture says in Luke 13, 3, the key message of Jesus here, don't miss it. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It seems to me that what we should say when we look upon the victims of 9-11 is, there but for God's grace go I. They were not worse people than me. They were not better people than me. They were people that were in the way of a building. Just as I one day will be in the way of something that will take my life, whether a building, a cardiac arrest, a stroke, Parkinson's disease, old age, whatever, a drunk driver, There's a tower waiting for me to fall on me. Maybe not a building, but it will take my life. Now, you know, we we all have it designed how we're going to die, don't we? You know, we kind of have this secret thought, well, I'd like to be 100. I wouldn't like to be 100. I think it would be terrible to be 100 personally, but a lot of people want to be 100, and they think, well, I'll have the little birthday party for a hundred, and then I'll just go in my room and a few days later, and I'll fold my hands, and next morning they'll come and say, oh, she's not alive anymore. She just died peacefully. Let me break your illusion. There might be one of you in this room to whom that will happen. Probably not even one. There's a tower waiting for you somewhere. I'm sorry to be grim about it, but there are young people here, perhaps under the age of 20 or under the age of 30, who won't be 40 years old. How can I say that? How can I know that? Well, statistically, it's true. There are people here who are 55, who are planning on a nice retirement, or 67, just starting that nice retirement. You won't see 70, because there's a tower waiting to fall on you. I don't know what shape it will take. But when you look around, that entitlement that you think belongs to you to have a long, peaceful life of no suffering and no trouble and, and you know, your house never gets flooded and devastated and, and those things just shouldn't happen. Who says so? Who says you're entitled to a nice, peaceful life? In light of what you are before God as an offender against Him, you aren't entitled to anything. And yet God has been long-suffering in His patience with you. He's brought His gospel to you. He's made His word known to you. 
And he has said, humble yourself before me and claim the name of my son and know that there's a way to escape the eternal consequences of the tower that will fall on you. What is that? It's called repentance. Repentance. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say faith. He didn't say take Jesus as your Savior. He said repentance. What's that? Know that you're a sinner. Know the enormity of what that means. Be sorry for that sin. Take ownership for that sin without excuses before God. And then, believing in his forgiving grace, go forward in the rest of your life, claiming his power to live a new life, even though sin still has its threads remaining in you. Now, you know, I'll have people tell me, boy, that was a harsh message for today. Couldn't you give us something light and comforting? I'm sorry, I got it from Jesus. Jesus knew it takes a loud alarm bell to awaken people out of the dumbness of their unbelief. Jesus knew that even two tall buildings falling in the middle of New York City wouldn't wake a lot of people up ten years after the fact. There are millions that haven't heard his message of what he was trying to say and the attention God was trying to draw to himself through that. Oh, yes, we've had a lot of things we could say about human heroism, and they're all good. Believe me, there were real heroes in 9-11. But that's not the ultimate message. And in fact, the end goal of it isn't a, a gloomy message either of repent, repent. The end message is grace. God is waiting to meet in his grace and mercy that one who will come to him and humble himself before him in the name of Jesus Christ and put over that one a shield of his power and belonging to himself such that if a skyscraper falls on you, you exist safe in him for all eternity. No skyscraper can touch you. No fire can touch you. No drunk driver can touch you. No disease can touch you. When you belong to Jesus Christ, you go right on existing in a more glorious existence than ever before. So this is a message of grace, you see. Humble yourself before God when you see these things in your world. Be prepared before the fact for the tower that's going to fall at some point. Believe me, is there anybody here really that, that thinks they're not going to die? That's all I'm saying to you when I say a tower is coming. I don't know what it is, but it's going to take you out of this physical world. You can be ready for it. You can be completely prepared for it by repenting and humbling yourself under the mighty God in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. There was a wise old saint who said, I hope to carry my words of repentance all the way up to the very gate of heaven. That's right. You don't just repent once and say, thank goodness I got that behind me. You repent all your days and say, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. But thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your salvation. May you carry your repentance to the very gate of heaven every day that you live this life. Thanks be to God. Our Father, thank you that Jesus didn't use soft words, merely light, comforting words. He sent a missile into our hearts here. 
when he said, unless you repent, you too will perish. But, Father, he never said anything more plain than this. And on this day when we, with our nation, pause and remember the hatreds of men and how it has hurt us and how it may well continue to hurt us in the future, may we be those who are wise and discerning and are ready to humble ourselves before Jesus Christ and then be your own people, captive in the shield of righteousness against anything that would come, safe before the tower falls on us. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.